2: Should students be taught and practice specific grammar points, yes or no?
0: Rather than giving someone an explicit piece of information and having them practice it, which they can usually do well for a short period of time, and then they cannot integrate it well enough to be fluent in a conversation. It's not totally eschewing this concept of grammar instruction, it's just hopefully getting people right when they need it most so mm-hmm. that it can be integrated in a way that it is going to stick. Being responsive to the developmental stage that your learners are in, recognizing that even if we drilled this form, there's still going to be some learners that don't get it because they just are not developmentally ready to acquire that and then utilize it in outside of a drill-based environment. There are so many real authentic ways that you can get learners interacting in digital spaces. They're motivated by online gaming or watching other people play games like Twitch and things like that, which I am fascinated (laughs) that people are into that. There's a lot of really cool research out there in like the gaming and digital space world um, and how technology can be utilized for TBLT. I definitely would argue that it is a myth. In fact, I think in some ways it's easier to integrate kind of new pedagogical innovations for people who are novice teachers because they haven't already kind of false, not fossilized, but they they might be a little bit more receptive to new ways of teaching because they haven't already um, come up <laughs> with the ways that they're very sure work for them.
1: You're very diplomatic.
0: <laughs>
2: You're being very, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say don't that. Don't say stubborn,
3: don't say stubborn, <laughs> don't say stubborn. Yeah,
0: yeah.
4: I mean, <laughs> we've
0: like, all been not, there. We've all been we've there. All, and you have totally all been the stubborn same. stubborn
4: too. Yeah.
1: yeah. Hey everyone, this is Andrew. And thanks for listening to Teacher Talking Time. And if you're new to our work here at Learn Your English, I need to tell you about our 5 in 30 community. Pretty simply, 5 in 30 helps you get your first five teaching clients in 30 days even if you have zero entrepreneurial experience. We surveyed all of you recently about the biggest challenges you have in starting and developing your own teaching businesses. And the vast majority of you said that it was finding and enrolling clients. So we wanted to help. And 5 and 30 might be a good fit for you if you've been thinking about starting your own teaching business for a while and just have been putting it off. Or maybe you've already started your business, but you don't have a clear niche. Or number three, you know, you maybe you have a clear niche and you want to add a new offer to your existing business. And if you followed our work for any time, you know that we like simple and 5 and 30 is very simple. Through the process, we help you, number one, identify the problem you solve. That's our take on niching down. Number two, create a solution to that problem. That's our process for helping you create your own course. And number three, enroll five or more students for that pilot course in just 30 days. And you'll get those five students without making a single post on social media. Does that sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to gain momentum and consistency in your business, understand your niche, and gain five new clients in the next 30 days without making a single post on social media? If so, head over to our website and get started. You can go to learnyourenglish.net slash 5in30 and get started right there. That's learnyourenglish.net slash 5in30. The link is also below in the show notes. We hope to see you on the inside if you feel this is a good fit for you. And now let's get back to the show.
2: Today, we're going to be joined by a guest whose work is actually shaping the future of language education, more specifically task-based education. Our guest today is Lara Bryfonski, um, who is an applied linguist and an assistant professor at Georgetown University. Laura's research spans a wide range of topics in second language learning and teaching, including task-based language teaching, teacher training, and the effectiveness of study abroad programs. Laura's expertise isn't just theoretical. Her background as an English as a second or foreign language teacher has taken her from preschool classrooms to adult education, both in the US and internationally. This practical experience informs her research and teaching making her insights particularly valuable for anyone interested in language education. Her work has been published in several leading journals in the field, like the Annual Review of Applied Linguistics and the Modern Language Journal. She's also the project director of Star Talk Task, which is an NSA funded program focused on training teachers in critical language. And for those of you who are always on the lookout for comprehensive resources, Laura has an upcoming book, which has been co authored with Allison Mackey titled The Art and Science of Language Teaching, which is already published by Cambridge University Press. So, whether you're a language teacher, a student, or simply fascinated by the process of language learning, you'll find Lara's insight both informative and inspiring. Let's dive in. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have uh, Dr. Lara Bryfonski here with us. Lara, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
2: Yes, well, as I was saying before, your career and your research, um, I would say, covers an enormous range of topics, so we have a lot to cover today, but I was hoping that we could start from the beginning. I think Ooh. I'm always interested in, in learning more the, the spark, what really motivated you to become, I think, first and foremost, I think you were a language teacher. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you decided to pursue a career in, in applied linguistics, second language acquisition and all that. So could you just walk us through that transition or that beginning and then the transition into your research?
0: Yeah, of course. Well, I think it's a very common story for applied linguists is that we start off in the classroom often and get you know, inspired by all of the funny and interesting things that people who are learning languages do. Uh, And for me, I just uh, got so curious about it that I felt a need to actually research what was going on. And now I will say that I was an undergraduate linguistics major. So I had Mm. the linguistics background on my side. So I kind of already was puzzling through some of those questions when I um, left. But I will tell you, my parents won't appreciate me saying this, but back then they had said, you can't be a linguistics major in college, you have to do something practical. So uh, I got my teaching degree, because I thought, well, I'll be able to apply what I learned in linguistics to a, to a useful uh, realm. Um, so I got my uh, bilingual education teaching license in Boston, and did my um, teaching practicum in Boston public schools. And I was in a, a program with newcomers, recently mm. immigrated, minors to the United States um, in their English language classroom. Um, And then from there, I moved uh, to Honduras, where I worked in an NGO that offers bilingual education Mm -hmm. to um, various schools in uh, Western Honduras. Uh, And I was a second grade classroom teacher. So I went from high school students, uh, which is where my degree and my uh, education was in into second grade. Uh, So I kind of saw the gamut of acquisition from various perspectives, also from people who had recently immigrated you know, as adults learning a second language and also um, children who are learning bilingually. So that was also very inspiring. And at the same time, I was also experiencing my own process of language acquisition, which I think is another common way linguists get into our kind of research, um, which is, you know, immersion and seeing what interesting things happen to you when that happens. so the curiosity of the real life exposure is what really drove me to pursue uh, more formal research in those areas.
2: Right. And, and you mentioned that you were working with uh, newcomers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Question for you. I think this is a good way for us to actually just jump right into task-based language teaching. Sounds good. When you were teaching those newcomers in those programs, was it a task-based program or was it more the traditional grammar based language teaching course book driven, or as uh, Mike Long likes to call feeding seals with, <laughs> with grammar.
0: I love that. Uh, shout out to Mike Long. Yes. Um, and that's uh, actually really funny that you asked that because at that time, and I haven't really reflected on this, because I hadn't even heard of TBLT at that stage. It was mm. not something that came up in my language teacher education um, coursework at all. Um, so it was Completely out of my realm at that mm-hmm. at that stage. But if I reflect on it, you know, this uh, at least in Massachusetts, of course, here in the U.S., it varies by state the legislation. But they have a very uh, rigorous English exam, and the entire kind of purpose of those ESL classes for those students is to get them to test out of English language services. So it's it, it was at that time a very grammar driven. Mm-hmm. Kind of teaching to that test based approach because this was the only goal. Now, I will say that I did also support a um, classroom that had ESL students who were also um, students with special needs. And because they kind of, uh, maybe because of their um, designation of special needs, they did seem to take more of a holistic approach
4: mm-hmm. in that
0: classroom. And those, a lot of those learners um, were studying for the American naturalization. Exam. So I do remember going through that process with some students, which does start to kind of move towards more of a task-based approach because we have this very clear task outcome of can you take an exam about U.S. history in mm. English and pass it. So um, whether or not all the teaching around that was always what I would call task-based, now probably not, but um, certainly was the closest I think I can remember coming to at that context. Mm.
2: It's interesting because you. <laughs> I was just, I'm taking notes because I feel like I'm never going to follow the questions that I had in mind. You said that when you first started in that program, um, you didn't know about task-based language teaching. And I think a lot of teachers who, when they start teaching and they come out of their pre-service courses or whatever the courses they have taken to become teachers, or some of them don't even take any courses, a lot of them never really, and this is an experience that I've seen, a lot of people don't know much about task-based language teaching and you didn't either so why is that
0: Oh, million dollar question um and in and, and fascinating to think about because now as a you know as a professor i get to interact with a lot of teachers who are also following kind of a similar path to me they came from the classroom now they're at georgetown they take a class in tblt with me or uh, with Lourdes Ortega, or uh, formerly, some of them would go to Maryland and get it right from Mike Long. Uh, but they would say things like I said, which is that, wow, this is, um, you know, what really aligns with what I imagine best practices are and really validates the way that I was teaching. Um, and then also adds a little something extra, some things I didn't think about, but that really do seem to make sense. Um, so it, it's, it's this funny conundrum in a way of, I feel, I see a lot of teachers, former teachers who are going to grad school um, for applied linguistics who seem really validated by it, but similarly did not really get a lot of exposure. Now, of course, like you were saying earlier, um, I think things are changing. I think that with maybe social media and opportunities like this for people to have a venue to talk about the interface Mm -hmm. of research and practice, I feel like teachers um, and researchers get to hear from each other a lot more often. So maybe that's why maybe t- a teacher today in a graduate program is probably more likely to um be exposed than I was.
1: Is it changing more, you think just in the world of research or more the change is that it's being applied more in classrooms?
0: Uh, well, i the applied is an interesting question, right? Because sometimes you see countries having like statewide mandates or things like that, like uh, I mean, uh, And I don't know all of the real reality of these countries, but like in Asia, in China, people are talking about TBLT at the like governmental level. Um, But whether or not they're actually doing TBLT in the classrooms is kind of another thing. And that's what I think a lot of my research is interested in is that gap of uh, we say we're doing TBLT or maybe it's a buzzword or you, yeah, you heard it in a podcast, Mm. (laughs) but Uh, are you actually doing it? Because I think that if you want to try something innovative, it's kind of hard to find support unless you have like a really strong um, professional network or community that's also working on that with you. Um, mm. So that's kind of an area that I think is really interesting to look at.
2: And and you mentioned that um, it's it there's a mandate like some countries are actually applying task based language teaching. And I remember reading and I think I want to bring him on the podcast as well. Uh, Chris Vandenbranden, because I yes. think you done a lot of work in terms of investigating the um, implementation of a lot of TBLT programs around the world. Do you have, like, are there any good examples of countries that have successfully implemented task-based language teaching?
0: I I wouldn't say that I have firsthand or knowledge of that. And I think talking to Chris Vandenbranden would be a great idea. Also, the the researchers that work over there in Belgium and Leuven. Uh, where we were I went to my first TBLT conference, actually, um, kind of one of the home bases. They, I know have uh, the gov- there's been governmental policies that have implemented. Um, I think uh, I've heard China. I'm not sure if I, you know, if uh, a, a Chinese scholar or someone working in that context can um say so. And there's obviously been a lot of researchers that have been been investigating TBLT, in TBLt in China. New Zealand is another place where you have a lot of um, researchers, whether or not it's at the level of governments i I, i'm not positive so Mm -hmm. yeah but it it certainly has been in the vernacular of a variety of contexts i actually was recently talking to um, a journalist in germany who was saying telling me that in in germany there there's apparently some initiatives around tblt at their governmental level for language acquisition and so she was asking me questions about it so um You know, I had to have a German friend translate the final journal article or the (laughs) article for me. So I'm not totally sure if I understood everything correctly. But uh, so, yeah, it's certainly a conversation. But again, the question is, is it really happening?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And And I'm I'm quite
3: curious. Oh, sorry. Go Go ahead, ahead. Mike. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just quite curious. I wonder, Larry, where do you think that attraction comes from? Like this sudden kind of recent push towards TBLT in these different areas?
0: Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, there's been in some ways all types of pedagogical approaches go through these kind of fad cycles. You know, you're always hearing things in the teaching community that teachers are excited about. Like, um, and I try and keep up with it. And I'm, you know, now that I'm away from the classroom, it is harder, but you know, like, uh, CI and comprehensible input and like people get into these kind of um, different worlds of language (laughs) teaching. Um, And, you know, I think that it's hard to navigate that for teachers. So I think a lot of them maybe are looking towards like research-based approaches or ones that have like ongoing research that's really innovative and that people are talking about in that way, just as a way of looking at different approaches. And because of course, no approach is going to be one size fits all. I talk to a lot of teachers where, you know, they just don't have the agency, especially here in the U.S. to overhaul a curriculum in a way that maybe Mike Long would have designed his a task-based curriculum. So they're looking at it from different angles, trying to see what could work from various approaches that's going to best meet the needs of their students. And of course, they're the ones that would know that best. So I think, um, you know, the fact that it's out there in the, in the um, kind of teaching world and amongst all these other approaches, I think is good. And I think it's good for teachers to hear how it could fit within uh, these frameworks that they're already excited about.
2: Wow. I was, I was just going to say when we were talking about the, um, the mandates in, and in Germany, I'm slightly concerned about the intersection or the connection between politics and task-based language teaching. I, I'm, I'm concerned that a, a politician might actually use task-based language teaching as part of their platform to just gain more votes. Mm. But I hope that doesn't happen. But the question then becomes. I vote
0: for it. You know, <laughs> <But that's... laughs> there you go. I mean, that would that I, would I be a real
2: says. niche in the
3: electorate.
0: Right? <laughs> Can <Yeah>. you imagine?
2: <laughs> I will revolutionize education. We're not going to teach grammar anymore. Uh, Which brings me to the question: Is TBLT a fad?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure a teacher might say that. Um, I think no. Uh, obviously, I'm very biased. <laughs> uh, I, I think that. Um, the, the way that it was originally, you know, we go back in time to when it was first kind of discussed in early literature. You know, I think that this, it was branching out of, you know, obviously the communicative language teaching movement mm-hmm. and adding these really interesting changes to the traditional ways of teaching that I think still resonate um, no matter whether or not you're fully implementing a truly task-based approach, or if you are doing something more task-supported. But this idea of focus on form and utilizing, come, come, not starting a lesson off with like, here's what we're going to do today. Here's the structures we're going to practice, and now let's go practice them. But actually bringing that into the moment where it's going to just meet where a student's at and when they really need it. I think that that, you know, even just that concept alone that comes from TBLT and the focus on form discussions. That arose from it is is something that can be can kind of endure no matter what, mm-hmm. and the research that's supporting it is so strong that I hope that it's not a fad and that it's something that you know can can just grow in popularity.
1: Do you think it's gonna be a long question because I have a lot of just thoughts? I'm just like talking on top. Sure, of but because you mentioned with the newcomer program at the beginning of your career that. You were doing test base, but what you you know, might not have been how you defined it now, you know years mm. years later and i've assuming that a lot of what teachers have some trouble with applying it is that there's all these different versions of TBL There's different opinions about what it is and what it isn't, but at a simple level, like just from that moment to today, like how has your view of TBL changed?
0: Oh yeah um, well, I mean, I, like I said, back then I really I, I, I didn't even have a framework to Put what I was really seeing into a continuum of different approaches, I think that that is actually just a fascinating discussion to have with teachers on its own of of like, here's like what researchers call different approaches to language teaching. Where do you think your district or your school fits? Like, or what what are you doing? Do you think it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that? So I find that conversation absolutely fascinating. Um, And of course, you know, I, I took my first TBLT class at Georgetown um, with John Norris, um, you know, Mike Long our, in our neighboring school. Um, and so I, I I come from kind of that history of um, the the task-based approach being kind of what I was um, most interested in, most excited about when I first learned about it. And of course, as I did a PhD and have now done research, I've, um, you know, I've talked to more teachers and kind of talked about the nuances of what's going on in their classrooms. And I think that it's good to empower teachers about maybe what the research has shown and maybe what, you know, that there are different variations on this type of approach to teaching, but also center them and say, you know, at the end of the day, you know, your students, you know, your context. Mm -hmm. So what can we, how can I, how can I support you and doing what you um, think is going to best help your student population. And then also sharing what the research might say about that.
2: It's funny because you said you you were biased um, when you were <laughs> basically saying that you support TBLT. But I think you have seen both sides. You you probably have been exposed to that grammar, grammar-centric type of teaching. And we know that TBLT is very well-researched. More than, what, 40 years now of research mm-hmm. yes. to support that. It's um, heavily supported by second language acquisition theories. I think the question that a lot of teachers who are probably listening to the podcast and the people that I try to, I don't like the word convert, but I like to provide <laughs> them with, with we're not. And it's very important that we're not trying to tell people what to do. We're here, we invite guests so we can talk about language, we can talk about research, and you can make the decision on your own. But the question then, um, Lara, is why are teachers, especially classroom teachers, still very hesitant to adopt task-based language teaching in their teaching and in classrooms? And I know you've done a lot of research on this. You've talked to teachers. So what is your take on that?
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. I thought there's really no one answer. There's like a different answer depending on the situation, the teacher, their teaching context. I will give you an example from really recently, which is um, we have a Star Talk program, which is a federally funded organization in the US that um, supports critical language um, instruction. So for us, that's Arabic, Russian, Korean, Mandarin, Farsi. Um, and so we did a workshop last summer where we had teachers of those languages come for a um, a week long um, kind of intensive workshop on TBLT. So they um, and some of them they had variations in exposure to TBLT and understandings of of what it was. Um, and so we really got to hear firsthand from them about what would what would TBLT look like in their classrooms. And I think that for those teachers mainly the issue is not feeling like they are have the agency to change things at the curricular level. So they're really thinking more about how can I uh, adopt tasks in my classroom because that feels doable to them. Um, not can we do a full needs analysis and make sure we're aligned with all their needs. Now we did talk about needs and kind of explored that because you know they can maybe make some adjustments, but a lot of them, you know, they're following curriculum that is mm-hmm. passed down from on high they don't have the opportunity to say, okay, I actually would like to reorient this syllabus completely. And a lot of them said, you know, I'm teaching towards a test or an assessment that's mandated. So Mm -hmm. how can I use TBLT? And, you know, we uh, try to encourage them to see how a task-based approach could still prepare students for assessments. Um, And better yet, um, both the assessment and the world outside the assessment Um, But I think that that is still lingers as an issue, um, especially if there if there's any structure where assessments are linked to or student outcomes are linked to like teaching evaluations and things. And that is the case um, here in D.C., for example. So these kinds of uh, worries are totally reasonable from a teacher's perspective.
1: Can you give us an example of how, because I know we get lots of questions all the time, just that, about teaching for assessments and then the mix of TBL. Can you give us an example maybe of how it could be accomplished with with TBL?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, if you think about, um, you know, a course that's aligned with students' needs and the kinds of linguistic structures that arise from those needs, Typically those structures are going to coincide with structures that would be tested on any sort of standardized mm-hmm. assessment metric. And so uh, the research would point out that it actually is more effective if, you know, if those structures are taught through the medium of things that students actually care about and can imagine mm-hmm. actually using their language skills to do by organizing classrooms so that they're forced to communicate by bridging gaps in communication and negotiating. And you know, if you design your tasks, in a way that maybe is also reflective of your outcome assessment that you need your students have to do, you can ensure that those tasks are still going to, you know, cause those structures that or the vocabulary that they need to arise naturally. Um, So, but in that way, you kind of, um, you know, I don't like the phrase to kill kill two birds with one stone, but you know, the equivalent that without any birds dying um, (laughs) of that. Where the students will be prepared for the assessment, but better yet, they actually will hopefully feel empowered to be able to use their language skills in communicative contexts outside of maybe that kind of assessment-driven environment. Hmm.
2: It's it's interesting because Andrew, I think you remember this. I, I we are talking about assessments because my the first time I've I've tried to implement TBLT within an EAP context, I failed miserably. Not because of the TBLT, but because of the assessments because the the place, the institution, the college, university that I was working for, their assessments were had already been created, and they mm-hmm. were very much focusing on specific grammatical structures. I they do remember to. this,
1: now that you're mentioning it. Mm-hmm. You, you called yeah. me, you were like, Andrew, I'm a, I have a problem.
4: I got in trouble. <laughs> I got in
2: trouble. So I think it's an interesting story for me to share, because I think maybe you can tell me what I could have done differently, and, and I think a lot of teachers probably have gone through a similar experience. So... It was an EAP class. I decided that I was going to do a needs analysis on day one. I found out all their needs. And for some reason, some of their needs aligned with some of the grammatical structures that were going to be taught in this course, but of course, not all of them. Mm-hmm. And I designed about eight tasks for eight weeks of class. And there was a lot of task repetition and things like that. But then, of course, when it when it got to the assessment, they all failed miserably.
0: Bummer. And
4: <laughs> yes.
2: I I at the at the time I was like, why? But but by students were telling me about Leo, we feel so comfortable. We feel more, we feel more confident in the language. We feel like we can communicate. I said, I know, but I don't think I've I taught these structures and I practice and drill them the way that you're going to be tested in, in in these assessments. So right there, I I was reminded of a quote by I think it was Van Patten who said this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but he said that, you know, things like uh person no endings or present perfect uh, these things they have to be learned from from the input like anything else they cannot be taught and practiced in order to build some sort of mental representation of them and i think the students didn't have that mental representation of, of those things but they were being tested on those very specific um, rules
4: mm-hmm.
2: is that what what caused the problem was it the the way they were they were being assessed on their knowledge about the language but they were not assessed in their performance in the language.
0: Yeah, that's such a great example. Um I think that this really speaks to like an issue in any assessment environment of that if you test in a totally different way than students learned, you're going to have a problem, right? Which is why usually we always encourage teachers in any domain to test students on what they what they learned in the similar way that they learned it so that, you know, you're actually getting at That and not about how good they're taking tests, or maybe, you know, maybe you, if you looked back at that uh, data, well, look at me calling it a data set, the data from your students, I'd be fascinated to know, you know, was there variation by by things like their working memory or their aptitude if we were to test them? Because usually what happens is that you're really high working memory learners, people who have like a pre existing aptitude for language, they can pick up those structures and apply them to a grammar based test more easily because they just have that natural capacity to do so, Mm. typically, but, um, you know, it didn't catch everybody. So it's like an assessment mismatch. So I I usually tell teachers, you know, who are in this kind of environment, you know, that it's not that you would give up on TBLT. still do what you did, your sounds like your students were super motivated and excited and felt like they could communicate. And that's what I would want out of my language teaching classroom too, but probably towards the date where they need to do this test there would have to be some instruction on like doing that test right something about maybe you know practicing in a more of a non TBLT type way just to get them to do that test because usually we i mean it's the same thing with like uh, i don't know the SATs right if mm-hmm. you don't practice taking the SATs and you do badly, it's probably not that you're just dumb and you don't have general like knowledge. It's that you didn't get, you know, the inside scoop on how to game the SATs, right? Right. So it tests uh, people's knowledge of the test. So you kind of have to work around that um, when you're trying to do something that's actually going to be more holistic way to learn language and really support the learners after that test is over and they're out there using their language.
4: Yeah. Hmm.
0: I mean, I think I can also think of, you know, some something relevant to my life, which is, you know, we get students from all over the world coming to the US to go to graduate school, and they usually have to pass the TOEFL or the IELTS to a certain level to be admitted to grad school. So but I do think that there's a difference between studying for the IELTS and passing it and being like very successful at different academic tasks in English and grad school. So I would prefer if students had a TBLT based classroom. They, then they did some training for the IELTS so they could pass it to get into grad school because then they would be better prepared, hopefully, to be successful in mm-hmm. the kinds of tasks that they encounter when they're graduate students, rather than just good at the IELTS, which really is not a useful skill set. One
1: They'd of graduate- my most famous or infamous, I guess, stories ever is I tutored a student, a woman, who was a native English speaker. The only language she spoke was English, and she failed IELTS twice.
0: Oh, my gosh. That's... Oh, fascinating. <laughs> so fascinating. And I mean, I did bad at the GREs too, <laughs> So and here I am in grad school, uh, in graduate education as my full-time job.
1: And she was taking it for, I forget, I think she was British and she was going to Australia for a job or something, and something with the visa, you had to do a language test no matter what your first language really? was. Really? And, and she had failed nine across the board on all the skills except writing. And she just didn't know the structure that they were looking for, and like yeah. one and a half sessions. And obviously, like she's fine, but it is a skill in and of itself, right? Just to to how, what the test is expecting.
0: Totally. Yeah. That's wow. What a, what a wild example. <laughs> yeah. I
4: hope she's not
1: listening. Sorry for telling.
0: Yeah. story <laughs> yeah, No names. I no hope names
2: confused, not. Yeah. I don't think she's a. I don't think she's a listener of the podcast. <laughs> so basically, the question then for me is: Should students be taught even though there is a lot of evidence against grammar teaching it's it's the evidence is quite strong we know that krashen has uh, annihilated grammarian's arguments van patten has also dismissed this grammar practice argument the question then becomes should students be taught and practice specific grammar points yes or no
0: well, like like you, I think we're saying there, it's not that TBLT says there's no explicit language teaching at all, right? Uh, it is that it's the timing mm-hmm. and the way that it's integrated into the syllabus. That's kind of the most important piece here, I think, to remember is that rather than giving someone an explicit piece of information and having them practice it, which they can usually do well for a short period of time and then they cannot integrate it, you know, and they cannot utilize it well no. enough to be fluent in a conversation. The the flipping on its head of that kind of format is where you um, do some sort of pre-task, activate prior knowledge, have students engage in tasks where they're um, hopefully aligned, either, you know, very clearly aligned or, or it could be more pedagogical, right? There mm. are way you usually start small, so you might not be, you know, actually ordering food in a restaurant or something like that. It could be something that really has. Um, like you know,
2: categorizing food, for example.
0: Right. Or even or even categorizing other things, you know, right. something that has extrapolated from the original target. Right. Right. Um, and then bringing up the, maybe some explicit focus on form for common issues that are being um, faced by students in that moment. That could be through corrective feedback. Uh, and explicit forms of feedback to students that are struggling. It could be like a mini lesson that occurs that goes over some structure. So it's not totally eschewing this concept of grammar instruction. It's just hopefully getting people right when they need it most so -hmm. that it can be integrated in a way that it is going to stick. And then through task repetition, these things can, you know, come back around enough times that students will be able to fluently utilize them. So I, I don't see it, yeah, as I wouldn't say like, Oh, you're going to completely, you know, implicitly teach all structures. Uh, it was, you know, TBLT goes back to, you know, the original design and the original focus with adults, you know, in maybe like for, uh, second language contexts who were immigrants. Um, it was the idea that without teaching them anything explicitly, they actually weren't progressing. So. But moving into this focus on form strategy seemed to help adults in in those early studies move faster through their acquisition process. Mm. So that's what I would say about explicit
4: content. It
3: it almost sounds like it it becomes more about teaching at the point of need rather than perhaps having some some forms in mind and prescribing those ahead of time.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, teachers typically, I think, know what's going to come up. And be a struggle, right? I think you talk to anyone who's taught their language before; they know where students commonly struggle and where issues are going to arise. And you might design tasks um, that you know aren't co- not, and I'm not saying like a covert grammar exercise, of course, but that a teacher, a teacher, because of their knowledge about their students in their classroom, they know that the kinds of issues that are going to arise grammatically are going to come out of this task. So um, they could probably predict those kinds of things. Um, And then you can be sure, right? Because you know, you see the issue happening. You're like, yep, this is what I expected. My Mm -hmm. students are at this developmental stage where they're struggling with this. um, And this task is going to help them hopefully achieve that in a way where they're activating all of the skills they need to negotiate for meaning and getting that information right when they're like struggling to communicate most so that hopefully it's going to click and that they'll be able to integrate it.
2: We're talking a lot about negotiating for meaning. Um, grammar, reactive teaching, teaching at the point of need. But I, I find that whenever I talk to teachers, we do workshops, sessions, webinars, and what have you. One of the biggest, and this is a question that I received when, I, when we posted that you're coming on the podcast. One teacher said to me, my biggest fear is I am going to provide my students with a task, but I don't know if they have... It's the fear. It's the fear Mm. that the students are not going to know what to do. They might not have any language to, so I'm not teaching anything. I'm just going to give them the task and just let them kind of, as I get, this is why it's a deep end approach. But I think how can we, what can we do to mitigate this, um, this fear, this, Mm. this hesitation that a lot of teachers have with this idea of like, giving the student a task, do something in the language. And then after that, we will work and identify some learning opportunities within, within your production here. What could you say to those teachers?
0: Yeah, I first of all, I totally empathize. Um, no one likes to um, be met with a bunch of deer in the headlights reactions <laughs> in a classroom of what are we supposed to do? And of course, most teachers are really trying to focus on, you know, staying in the target language as much as possible in their classrooms. Um, so that, you know, they're also worried that students might not understand for those reasons. I, I, um, this is kind of an area that I'm really interested in researching, because I do a lot of research on teacher training, mm-hmm. and how we can prepare teachers um, to navigate those kinds of situations in their classrooms. And the reactive part of it, I think, is really difficult. It's much easier. uh, And well, maybe not easier. Teaching is never easy. And I don't mean to say it like that. You know, it's more maybe more straightforward if you have a pre-existing syllabus and you kind of come with these specific worksheets from the textbook Mm -hmm. and, you know, it can kind of proceed in that way. And you might still be creative and and create uh, cool ways of drilling grammar. But you know, it's a little bit more straightforward in that way. So I, I don't mean to, it is difficult to approach teaching in this more reactive way. And that is why a lot of my research has been looking at novice um, teachers um, mm. and how they react to learning about TVLT and approach it when they don't have a lot of those intuitions that more experienced teachers have to um, fall back on about uh... like what students are going to struggle with. Um So, you know, mitigating the fear, I guess I would really advocate for, um, you know, teacher teacher learner type of partnership communities where people can talk about the issues they're facing together and collaborate on those issues Um, and uh, also getting involved in any sort of training or workshops that are available. Either there are so many cool ones online. I know um, Andrea Revesh, I think, has a Mm. Coursera that does TVLT. Um, there's so many cool things, um, available, um, and kind of starting to uh, have that community where you can discuss these issues. Because the thing is, is that it's always something different in all of the different classes, Mm -hmm. like ages, proficiency levels, contexts. I mean, no one can come to you as the teacher and say, those are the exact issues that you're going to face. And here's how to solve them. We have to, we have to also (laughs) be reactive. And yes. say, like, let's talk about it together and think of a solution that's going to work for you.
1: Since yes. you mentioned it, um, we're going to ask this later, but you brought it up. We attended a talk of yours over four years ago um, when you were here in Ottawa. And I just brought the abstract up because I found it. And it was about training novice teachers, pre-service, I believe, um, mm-hmm. in, in Honduras. Yeah. And can you, I, this is putting you on the spot and hopefully i if you don't remember? That's okay. But can you walk us through that? I think we're really interested in this novice teacher idea in TBL. Both we were talking the three of us before before you jumped on about how maybe grassroots isn't the right word, but just in a training perspective where traditionally TBL is not included, and that can be you know one of the causes of this, but. I guess we could classify novice teachers as just if you haven't tried a TBL approach before, you might fall into that category as well. What was your experience and what did the study kind of go through and others that you've conducted since then at a pre-service level of, you know, what Leo said, kind of people have a myth that it can't be done or it's not a good time to to try that or to apply that. How would you kind of counter that, that line of thought?
0: Yes. Well, yes, I do remember that study because it was my dissertation research, so I I will never forget it. (laughs) Um, Yes. Uh, Well, first of all, I definitely would argue that it is a myth. In fact, I think in some ways it's easier, and I wouldn't say there's necessarily empirical evidence on this point, maybe not for TBLT, but perhaps in general education, that it is easier to integrate kind of new pedagogical innovations for people who are novice teachers because they haven't already kind of, false, not fossilized, but they they might be a little bit more receptive to yeah, kind of, of- a
3: guard maybe. Yeah,
0: yeah to new yeah. ways of teaching because they haven't already um, come up with the ways that they're very sure work for them. You're
1: very diplomatic, you'd say. Uh, you are being
3: very, I was going to say that. I was going to say don't that. Don't say stubborn, don't say stubborn.
0: Don't say stubborn, yeah, yeah i mean <laughs> we've all like, been there we've all been we've there and i am we've totally all been the stubborn same. too yeah yeah, yeah yeah if you came to me and said the class you're teaching in spring i want you to revolutionize the way you're teaching it and spend your whole winter break working on that i'd be like oh my gosh are you kidding me like uh it it's you know it's not easy so um this isn't i don't want to kind of diminish the fact that um Teachers who have a, a lot, and a lot of teachers are always on a growth journey where they're excited to learn about new things. And I mean, you you go to ACTFL, you go to these teacher centered TESOL conferences. It's full of all of these excited teachers that are all sharing new ideas, new approaches. So teachers are always ex- usually always excited about that. But novice teachers are. I definitely don't think it's the wrong time. In a way, I think it could be the perfect time because then you um, get them excited about research based strategies from the very beginning, rather than saying hey uh maybe you should try it in a new way because there's all this new research and then you come up on um, it's kind of face threatening like oh have i been teaching wrong are you saying that i'm like not a good teacher so you and of course we're not saying that so it kind of, you don't have that issue as much with with novices um but anyway so these teachers um this is the same organization where i started teaching uh in Honduras um and they are a lot, I think like a lot of NGOs that operate, and this this one's really cool in that it is owned and operated by Hondurans who, um, you know, they want to be able to offer a bilingual education in their kind of rural area schools. So they partner with an NGO so that they can support and train English speakers to be able to offer bilingual education without charging like high tuition fees, mm. which is usually the only way to access bilingual education in some um, especially in Central America, re- in that region. So, um, so that's the organization. And like a lot of these organizations, they have a very short window to train people who are coming to work um, at those schools and get them up to speed on the way that teaching is done there. So uh, that's a, it's a really just a four-week kind of summer camp where they do two weeks of kind of intensive um, training, and then they do a practicum where they get to try out things in the classroom. So I uh, was supporting that and helping train the teachers and we integrated um, TBLT into it. And so I thought that that would be a great opportunity to investigate for these more novice teachers who are first years, the schools, um, how they uh, take in that information and then how they apply it when they are asked to in a in a teaching practicum. So um, I was interested in how it might affect their beliefs, maybe their pre-existing beliefs about. Mm-hmm. Um, how language is learned generally, and also about approaches to language teaching, which mostly come from how people experience learning languages themselves. So they might say, "Well, I learned this way, and I and it really worked for me." So, like, I think that it's great, um, which could be true. Um, so I kind of measured whether there were change in beliefs um, from before and after they participated in this task based training, uh, and then I also looked at the kinds of tasks they developed for their classrooms that they tried out in the practicum. And we did um, stimulated recall interviews, which is just where I, I, I video recorded them and we watched the video back right afterwards. And I just op- asked some open-ended questions like, what were you thinking about? Um, so I really was able to get at how they were kind of trying out information that they had just learned in the classroom. And what we were just talking about, which is that the reactive side of it is very difficult. That was one mm-hmm. of the outcomes that I saw, which was that um, the reactive side of teaching, the corrective feedback, the responding to kind of individual issues as they arose and bringing in that focus and form on the right times. So that was where they were struggling the most. So um, kind of validates the conversation that we were just having. Um, and that's kind of an area that I am still exploring today.
2: You said, uh, it's, this whole reactive teaching is, is is really interesting because I came across a guy I'm trying to remember his name right now. Um, he wrote a paper on reactive teaching. Yes, I found it. 2021, um, Alas Mari and Alta Kafi. they wrote about um, teachers' practices of proactive and reactive strategies in in the classroom. Um, and I think that I wanted to like, maybe maybe you can elaborate a little more on this whole reactive teaching thing what exactly you said you said corrective feedback was one mm. of them
4: mm-hmm. but
2: were there any other specific areas of this whole reactive teaching thing that you found were difficult for teachers especially novice teachers because when you when you are used to teaching preemptively you're 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 basically proactively you just say okay i'm going to teach the present perfect i'm going to teach the simple past Hopefully we can, uh, um, you know, contrast the two of them (laughs) Uh and then that's fine. But when you do that through a task and then you have to react, that's where the difficulty um, seems to stem from. So what could you say about reactive teaching? Is that something, and I know you haven't researched this, but maybe you know more about this than I do, but what could teachers do to develop this reactive teaching muscle or this reactive teaching, perhaps, mindset? Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, well, this is what we kind of call a lot in TBLT of the difference between uh, the task as work plan and the task as process, right, which Mm -hmm. is you have this plan for your task that you maybe write down, and you think it's going to go a certain way, and uh, then you have the actual thing that happens when you try it out in the classroom, which we've we've all been there. Um, I'm always, it happens all the time, even in, in in teaching grad
1: school during our podcast, when we just, the audio stops working, we have to figure it
4: out. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh,
0: so I think, uh, you know, if I think back on my, um, I tell my students this too, that when I first started teaching, you know, I would write these like robust lesson plans, like Every, almost oh. down to the word of what I was going to say because I was so nervous that I was, I don't know, going to say <laughs> the wrong thing and ruin their like psychological development or something like that. So I would, you know, like really over-prepare. Um, and that really makes it hard to be reactive, right? Because mm-hmm. if you've, if you've over-prepared you've, you're like, well, I, I worked really hard yeah. on this lesson. I've got to implement it as I intended to. And you start to become almost blind to, moments of actually this seems like the perfect moment to deviate from the plan and focus in on what's happening right now. So it's a part of that is experience. I think most mm-hmm. teachers know that they've probably grown in that way uh, over the years, uh being in a classroom and knowing when it's okay to go off script in in a way. Uh not that you should be scripting your lessons. That was not ever a good idea. <laughs> it was totally just nerves for me. Um, but Also, yeah, kind of allowing yourself uh, the opportunity, even building it in if you are writing um, lesson plans in a a detailed way of areas where you think that there could be opportunities to um, pause and reflect or look at, uh, uh, do some just like observing and noting down things that you're seeing and noticing and kind of building that in. I think that that like builds in reactivity into your design process rather than just saying oh well if it happens something cool happens stop and and engage with that so it makes it more of a practice and that can help people i think develop that skill set which also comes i think from experience
3: i wonder if it's also perspective as well right like seeing the students as kind of co co co-investigators kind of like yeah equal participants in the process itself right like if you're Kind of giving them the platform and really entrusting them with the direction of the lesson and and listening from the side. It might, that perception alone might bring more kind of teachable moments to the surface, I feel. Oh,
0: I completely agree. I think anytime you give agency back to your students is a time where you can really see some interesting things happen. And I think there's a lot of research in general, uh, education sciences for sure, that uh, student agency can. lead to greater motivation. And of course, we know motivation and language mm-hmm. acquisition is incredibly important. So ac- finding a way to activate that, I think it, um, giving students agency over their learning is definitely one great way to do that.
1: One of the results that that study had, I'm reading off the the description here, and you can if, this brings us maybe into the weeds a little bit of TBL because you said sure, sure. one of the lowest points was respecting, of those pre-service teachers or novice teachers, was respecting the learner's internal syllabi or processes mm-hmm. is that what you you're describing um, and is or is that something different and for people who are listening it may not be I've never heard that term before or not familiar with what that is maybe just can you describe that for us cuz I think that's a really important point of this as well
0: yeah so uh, that is really getting at what we were just talking about about whether or not learners are developmentally ready to take in the instruction that they're receiving so I think leo was mentioning that that happened in his class as well. Um, So being responsive to the developmental stage that your learners are in. So that would be um, recognizing that even if we drilled this form, even if we did like the drill method and drilled this form, there's still gonna be some learners that don't get it because they just are not developmentally ready to acquire that and then utilize it in outside of a drill based environment. So being able to recognize that and kind of um, be at where learners are and support them for the needs that they have in the task is kind of what that um, stage of. And those are Mike Long's methodological principles for TBLT, which is what I based kind of my coding off of. I, was, I wanted to look at how teachers were interacting with all of these definitions of TBLT that Mike Long had put out to see where we were where we were meeting them or where teachers were mm. still struggling. so and that uh, that and the corrective feedback, those ones where you're really looking at what's happening in the moment, it's not on your lesson plan. those were the ones where teachers were um, less likely to discuss or think that uh, they were really meeting those targets.
2: Mm. I think what I'm hearing now, and I'm just trying to gather my thoughts now, Perhaps, and this is for all of us listening, including all of us here in the in the studio talking about this. Perhaps the more we prep, the more we we the more time we invest in preparing a lesson, and in in having that lesson, that rigidity of, of of having a lesson plan, I think the less open we become to the kind of reactive, responsive teaching that we're talking about. Because you've invested so much time in preparing this amazing lesson where you will teach a very specific um, structure and eventually the lesson, we know this, we, we know that the lesson usually goes in a completely different direction and the teacher keeps trying to bring the students back into like, yeah, yeah, but we're not talking about the second conditional. <laughs> no. But the students are somewhat showing some sort of predisposition to actually use the. And I remember the first time, I understood the whole idea of the learner internal syllabi was when I was teaching a lesson and the student, it was a, I think it was a beginner, maybe, maybe A1, A2, A1 plus, I don't know, A2. And that student was trying to use the third conditional, naturally trying to use the third conditional. And I was teaching something else. And eventually I realized, I was like, huh that guy is really trying to use the third conditional. <laughs> so maybe what I should do now is teach them the third conditional. And eventually I taught him the third conditional. And what I've noticed over the, the, the coming weeks is that he was actually using the third conditional, the second condition and the third conditional very well. And then I realized, huh, that guy was ready to learn the second condition. So I think in a way, reactive teaching is being more attuned to what learners are actually trying to to say what they're trying to communicate, which brings us back to TBLT, because we've been throwing all these names, negotiating for meaning, agency, reactive teaching. There is a paper, um, Lara, Mike, Andrew, written in 1984. I had a chance to reread this paper, I think yesterday, and it's by All Right. I don't think it's Dick All Right. I think it's a different All Right. There's too many all rights out there, and that's all right. <laughs> and the, the paper is called The Importance of Interaction in Classroom Language Learning. And I think TBLT emphasizes the interaction part of it. So my question to you would be, how does interaction and learning through interaction, why do they matter so much when learning a second language?
0: Oh, yeah, uh, interaction, I think, is one of the... M- one of the most researched areas in SLA. There's been such a long history. There's been many meta and analysis of uh, analyses of the impacts of interaction and different forms of interaction on learning. So I feel very strongly that... um, it's key to acquisition. And we usually talk about interaction in in multiple subcomponents. And some of them I think are obvious, like input. So obviously mm. no one's going to learn a language if they don't have access to it. So you have to have input and hopefully you have access to rich input. So this can be actually a debate um, among teachers and um, depending on who you talk to about, should I simplify Input for lower learners, or should I, um, should I question. use very authentic uh, input for learners, or are there other ways? Can we elaborate input without simplifying it? So there's been some research in that area that has shown that um, if you only expose learners to, you know, maybe what you want to call impoverished input or simplified input, that's always just at their level or a little bit above their level, you know, they end up having, you know a oversimplistic view of what's mm. going on in the language. And then that causes issues when they go out and they're exposed to all the rich real ways that people use the um the language. So perhaps now there are there times to simplify language? Of course there's there certainly is. I'm not saying that it would never happen, but um I think Mike Long argued uh, for this also that elaborating input is actually one of the ways to go. So not taking away the structures that are maybe more challenging, but adding you know, synonyms, adding additional mm-hmm. explanations, connecting them to prior knowledge, adding more rather than taking away. So input is oh. obviously critical. Then of course, output uh, there Meryl Swain's very famous research that sure you can put learners in a classroom and give them access to lots of input, but if they aren't being pushed to actually use the language, then we also see, um less development. So making sure that learners are being encouraged to try out things that they've learned to um, you know, modify their output if they hear that someone misunderstood them, mm-hmm. so to change what they said and to test out a new option, that has been aligned with acquisition. And that is also part of negotiation for meeting, which i mm-hmm. I have been throwing out, but that's just any time uh, that learners are in that process of kind of struggling to be. Understood to communicate so, and that could be through responding to feedback, which is mm-hmm. really the fourth element: corrective feedback. So, responding to people saying "What I don't understand you," or um, even something more explicit from a teacher like "Oh, actually, uh, you're missing the the um, third person s ending," right? You know, um, so, or just recasting what they said. So, just repeating it back corrected. Um, so, the process of hearing feedback and responding to it and moving towards a goal with an interlocutor, with a partner that you're talking with, that has been shown to really be what can help drive acquisition. So that's kind of how interaction works. And there's also uh, you know, kind of underlying this is whether or not learners are paying attention to what's happening and to the the extent to which they're noticing Mm. those structures uh, in the input, in the interaction. Um, And that is also uh, linked to their acquisition. So very complex, very dynamic, um, but it's what happens when you're out communicating with people in your native language too. So it really um, helps, I think, tie back to real language usage.
1: Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back.
2: And if you are also new to our Learn Your English community, I have to tell you more about our Teacher Accelerator Program, which is our online program for teachers all around the world who want to eliminate lesson planning, reach and help more students, teach less, earn more money without, of course, sacrificing work life balance. Our programs help teachers reflect and develop in the most important skills they need to succeed in the information age. And it's just like your teaching isn't for everyone, our program isn't for everyone everyone. It's for someone. The program has four pillars of successful design. We have a community, we have live sessions, we have self-paced learning, and more importantly, we have lots, lots of feedback. Does this sound like you? Are you a teacher who wants to implement dogmy and task-based learning in your teaching? Do you want to eliminate lesson planning? Do you want to help more students, but also work less? Do you want to transition From selling your time, teaching one-to-one, to actually focusing on outcomes and selling results? Do you want to be a business owner and not an employee? And more importantly, do you want to build and scale your teaching business? If this sounds like you, then you have a great opportunity here. Just head over to our website, learnyourenglish.net slash schedule and book a meeting with us. We would love to have a conversation about your current situation and whether we can help you with any of these things.
0: Hey everyone out there, I am Pamela from Costa Rica and you're listening to Teacher Talking
2: Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Hola a todos, ¿cómo están? Mi nombre es Pamela y soy de Costa Rica y ustedes están escuchando en este momento Teacher Talking Time del
4: podcast Aprende tu Inglés.
2: Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, a lot of teachers would probably say, but Leo, Lara, there is output in a PPP lesson because we present the language, teachers present language in many different ways. They're very creative with the presentation part. I've seen all kinds of very creative lessons where teachers would bring a can of soup to introduce the model verb can because it's all <laughs> about eliciting. Cool. Um, they would have very good practice where they would drill, they would do all kinds of things. And then they would have that output part. They would have that. So why, I think the question that I think a teacher, I'm trying to put my myself in the shoes of this kind of teacher who would be like, ah. Uh, TBOT still doesn't work. There is output in that kind of, in that lesson framework, but is is it the same kind of interaction in that in that kind of, in that sense? And I don't know if it is, Lara, because I feel in a way that you've been trying to prime students to use that very specific structure. And I think all of us have experienced lessons where we, we taught a very specific grammatical structure. We practiced that very specific grammatical structure. And when it came to the, production the output they used other structures to still (laughs) Mm -hmm. negotiate meaning to still interact with each other is how is that different from the kind of output that we have in task-based language teaching
0: yeah so all of the things i was just talking about interaction input output negotiation for meeting feedback those could be a part of another type of teaching approach for sure, it could be part of a PPP environment. It could be a part of, um, you know, other kind of approaches that are that, uh, on the same kind of level of TBLT, like a project-based learning mm-hmm. or um, CLIL content and language integrated um, instruction. Um, so, of course, that the interaction could be very facilitative in all of those in all of those approaches and cases. Where TBLT is different is in the design, in the structuring of lessons, in the approach to the curriculum and the syllabus design, ideally, and then in when the focus and form happens. So you could have a highly interactive lesson that has access to all the features, but it could be focused on explicit drilling of information. You know, you could say, go to your um, classmate and ask, uh, or go to every classmate and ask them, what is it, what's their favorite color or what color do you like or something like that? And maybe Mm -hmm. this is Spanish class and you want them to like practice the gustar, uh, way (laughs) of formulating to like, uh, and so really it's actually, so it's interactive. Maybe they're going to have some negotiation for meaning. Maybe they had a communication breakdown. They could have all the things, but they're just drilling the, the form. So they're, They're just going to be focused on explicitly trying to replicate what their teacher said that they wanted. So the question is whether that's actually going to lead them to a place where they're able to integrate and utilize it, or if they were just able to do it because they were drilling it in the moment in the classroom. Yeah. So whereas a TBLT strategy would be completely different, right? It would be activating prior knowledge, creating a situation perhaps where maybe Gustar is likely to be used. But it's more about maybe um, finding roommates that like the same things that you like Mm -hmm. to get the best group house in college or something. And so maybe Gustav is going to come up um, and maybe the teacher will hear some issues with it and will go around and give corrective feedback in the moment. Or maybe we'll do a mini lesson on it as a result. But they're going to really want to find the roommate. They're focused on a different outcome now, not just practicing Gustav. So, this idea of the communicative outcome being the driver is really where the the acquisition comes in, rather than like, okay, great. We all practice Goose Star, nice job, and go yeah. out in the world and use it
1: for real. Though living by yourself now is, is almost impossible. You need a roommate. You need a roommate, oh, oh, f-
0: <laughs> especially in expensive cities like we all live in. Oh my gosh! <laughs>
3: <Yeah>. <laughs> so let's find the richest roommate. Yeah, yeah,
4: exactly.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. Somebody yeah. whose parents already bought them a really hopefully nice has good tasting colors.
1: Uh, yeah. I
3: <laughs>
1: that I know. Leo wants to talk about advice for. Teachers who want to try it out for the first time TBLT, mm-hmm. which maybe we, I think we've mentioned it, but just in in plain terms, this is the, my question really. What is a task?
0: Oh, well, uh, there I will acknowledge that there are m- multiple definitions of what a task is, so I, you know, and different like theoretical claims <laughs> of what they could be. So for my researcher <laughs> friends out there, please don't, you know, take me down for my <laughs> perspective. But you and won't think, share the podcast oh with them, God. don't yeah, 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 keep them away. We yeah. don't,
2: yeah, we don't,
4: yeah. <laughs> so, we don't I need think, that
0: here. you know, um, so Long might say that a task could be anything that uh, somebody would do in their day to day life that they need language to do. So, it could be as broad as that. So, an activity that you actually need to do in the, in real life. Typically, teachers, I think, like to hear that broken down a little bit more. And Keegan and and Ellis and Tani have kind of created this framework that I think has become really popular for um, uh, kind of breaking down what components could a task include. And usually that is that meaning is the primary driver of the interaction. So again, they're not focusing just on using language. They're actually trying to do something with it. Usually that there's some sort of communicative problem that you're trying to solve. So that creates that gap where you need to communicate and share. Uh, that there's usually some relationship with the real world. And so Mm. you aren't like focused on just using specific structures. So um, this would mean like, you probably wouldn't want to give learners like a word bank that they have to use because that would be a a way to turn it into more of a drill. So there's some relationship with real world and usually, um, yeah, there's a communicative outcome. So the outcome is not simply practicing language. It's that we found the perfect roommate Right. In the example that I previously gave. So huge primary focus on meaning, this communicative outcome, the need uh, to solve a problem and communicate and bridge a gap. And then some relationship with real world activities where learners are relying on their own language skills to solve these problems. Those are usually how people tend to define tasks. So that was a very long answer, nice. but I think it covers uh-huh. all of the ways that people might hear about tasks.
1: Yeah. And if we take that roommate example, I think teachers also like to hear examples of of examples, right? If I wanted to use that, and I think, you know, especially with student demographics, getting a roommate is a pretty practical one, for sure, for a lot of people. What are different ways that, as a teacher, we could frame that? You know, we talked about the outcome of finding a roommate, but how would we, what is, what's the task instruction? Because task instruction is also important, I think, as well. What, What are different ways of framing the instruction for that task?
0: Yeah, well, a really common one uh, that I think people have found is a useful framework is using a pre-during post-task kind of strategy where you have a activation of prior knowledge or um, sort of an introduction to the topic. So like maybe you're going to watch a video of people struggling to find roommates or having some sort of like get to know you interactions, or you're going to talk generally about uh, what kinds of things that you look for in someone that you live with, or some sort of pre right. and the pre test can sometimes be like multiple class periods, like building up to this. You know, it's not just like a five always just like a five minute quick uh, warm up. It could be a whole um, kind of separate. Um, time it could be an entire all- lesson. It could be an entire lesson. It could be multiple lessons potentially. Yeah. Which is um, also another
2: thing about TBLT, Laura. Um, just to interrupt you very quickly, yeah, and I think it's important for teachers to know this. You cannot. I think a lot of teachers are under the assumption that you just run a TBLT lesson in 45 minutes to an hour.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, it's flexible. If, if that's all you got, then sure, we could design a way for you to 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 fit it in that way. But usually it's the, the gradual buildup to the target task, right? So mm-hmm. we maybe are having some smaller mini tasks on our way, or right. we're having a pre-task Activation of prior knowledge, kind of a warm up or a series of warm ups. Right. And then we usually move on to um, the main task or get closer and closer to that target task. So in this case, I could imagine a task could be, um, you know, it depends on the level, of course, but you get some pro, everyone's got a profile or a couple mm-hmm. profiles, and you have to ask people like who your their friends are. And they have to tell you about them. And then you have to say like, oh, well, this is what I'm looking for. This is what I like. And you have to like take notes about who is who is like on your list of who maybe you want to interview as candidates for this roommate mm-hmm. position. I mean, you could go on and on. So you're hitting, if you're doing something like that, you're hitting all the elements of a task, right? Because you're not focused on specific target phrases. You could use whatever language you need to figure out what roommate you need or what your friends' friends are like um you're you're goal driven in the sense that you're looking for a roommate um you have to talk to people you can't figure this out on your own so you've got to negotiate using whatever resources you have and at the end you've got the person that you want so you have this clear outcome so it hits up all that and then there are usually people like to do some sort of post-task reflection kind of piece where maybe um there's um, a presentation or a reflection or something mm-hmm. like that so there's been a lot of interesting studies that have looked at like what happens to complexity of language accuracy of language fluency when you tell people that there's going to be a presentation later it can kind of change the how accurate or how complex they end up being because they're now focused they're thinking ahead to like okay I got to prepare to say this mm-hmm. out loud probably going to prioritize being very accurate right And not just this like fluent conversation that I had just had during the task. So that's kind of an interesting thing to like tell teachers about, because I I don't remember necessarily thinking in that linguistic way when I was teaching myself. But of course, you see it happen. And it's very interesting to Mm -hmm. see those changes occur. So that's kind of like what it could look like in a classroom.
2: I think, Mike, you will probably remember the interview we did with Jane Willis. And oh, well,
0: she would know most of all about free we language. <laughs> and she wrote
2: about that. And I think Dave Willis also talked about that. And I think that's the reason why his task based language teaching framework includes the fluency part where um, students are just negotiating for me and they're trying to find their roommate. And then eventually they would have to do this stage in the lesson where they would have to report to the class on who the best roommate was. And his rationale was the moment students have to report, to the class they have to talk in public they will naturally um s- change their language is that is that Moni- correct, Mike? monitor
3: yeah like just yeah. They monitor their Do you language remember that and refine it yeah yeah and yeah. in fact you can even build in a stage I think they were saying like where you give them a chance to kind of take what they've already created and and now you have a, a few minutes to kind of refine before your final presentation type thing and it's a nice way of dealing with focus on form from the students um,
2: perspective yeah, yeah. yeah
4: and
2: I think that kind of in a way refutes the argument that task-based language teaching is, is primarily concerned with fluency and not accuracy.
0: 100%. That's a very common thing that I've, that I heard too, is that, Oh, they're just going to practice talking. Exactly. Um, But no, I mean, depending on how you organize things, you can have a huge impact on whether or not they're focused on fluency building versus accuracy. So a presentation is always going to push people to focus on different parts of language than um, the kind of roommate conversation would, Mm -hmm. that would definitely probably prioritize fluency. Um, And there are other manipulations that you can do in order to kind of tweak how people are focusing on different aspects. There's
2: also the, the, and this is something that I remember people were talking a lot about during that task-based language teaching conference. It was the the notion of task repetition. Yes, perhaps you can tell tell us more about that and how task repetition can actually help students with um, the accuracy part of things or the accuracy side of language.
0: Yeah, well, we've certainly know from uh, research on um, on repeating, you know, access to the input sources. I mean, you you know, probably most people have heard about spaced repetition at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, I know a lot of apps rely on that kind of Mm -hmm. method. Um, so, we'll talk about
2: that too hopefully yeah if we have yep, a chance. for sure
0: um but anyway uh but really with tblt uh i think that you're more mimicking the fact that in real life we do encounter the same kinds of tasks multiple mm-hmm. times and we in any language we use like learn from those experiences and become more confident more accurate maybe more complex as we go and so teachers can kind of leverage that by, mm-hmm. you know, designing. It might not be the exact same task. It might be a new theme. It might be a new, yeah, a new content. So maybe um, the, this like roommate task could happen again with, um, you know, a similar a similar topic, but or a similar type of strategy, but a different topic. Like I'm trying to I don't think know, of hooking
2: one, up like, your friend with someone could be.
0: Yeah, like dating know, or dating, adopting uh, a pet. Like yeah, I could think true. of, they, that would integrate yeah. totally different language, um, but have kind of similar structures, have a similar right. focus. So you kind of can play with that through building in repetition into the lessons. Mm-hmm. And then they can accumulate that knowledge over time.
2: Which is not something that we often do in language teaching because we, we often teach something and then we move on to the next thing.
0: Yeah.
4: So
2: there's not enough of this recycling, this repetition. I think that's why task repetition is so. So important. We and overlooked.
1: Sorry, yeah. Last year, yeah, yeah go Leo ahead. remembers. We we put together a um a little info product for teachers called TBLT Made Easy, and it was just for people who are interested in in starting and applying it. And Leo, we use the the Willis the six tasks that Willis yeah talks about, right? And and talking about repetition, they do kind of in a way sequentially go together, right? I think the first one would be listing tasks, for example. So list the qualities of of a good roommate that you'd be looking for, or that you mm-hmm. would not be looking for right? Then order order them is the second one, right? So which mm-hmm. one's the most important, the first priority, the yeah. second priority, et cetera. Um, just looking at the list, the next one is comparing. So you could compare, as Laura, you said, like when you have a couple of candidates, you can compare. And this would be logically like over a week, maybe two, perhaps, right? Of of going For through, sure. not definitely in, in a 45-minute session.
4: No which, no,
2: no. which brings me to this very important question, because we're talking about um task-based language teaching and I think that a teacher who's who might be listening to this might be thinking okay this is all beautiful this is great I love this conversation but what about me
4: <laughs>
2: what is what is the teacher doing if all they do is here's a task produce language go ahead what do you do do you just sit back check your apple news like group? <laughs> <only>. I, <laughs> I, I write grocery lists sometimes <laughs> But I think the question then becomes: if if we if we look at the way we proactively teach forms, grammatical structures using a synthetic syllabus versus task-based language teaching, which is more holistic, teacher uh, teaching reactively, teacher as as a, as a guide on the side, what is the role of the teacher in a task-based lesson in a task-based classroom?
0: Yeah, this is one of the most interesting areas to me, because I think that that has been a common criticism that people have said that, mm. oh, the teacher's role is totally diminished by TVLT. They're just a manager now making oh. sure that everyone's on uh, on task, for lack of a better term, um, when really <sighs> the role of the teacher is actually, um, you know, just just as involved, if not even perhaps more uh, when you're in the midst of a task-based type, type of um, environment. And I say that because when you talk about all these different features that we've been talking about, you know that is something that would require specialized training to discuss mm. how would you manipulate your classroom environment to make sure you're hitting up all of these features that we know promote acquisition. So you, you are um, specializing in that in a way and focusing on Um, adjusting the environment to make sure that it's always meeting those learners' needs. So you're walking Mm -hmm. around, you're providing the corrective feedback, you're taking notes about what kinds of structures are coming up in those tasks, where errors are persistent, where learners are struggling to negotiate. Um, Because all of that is going to be really important information for what you do next with it. So Mm -hmm. either is that a tax repetition? Is that a focus on form moment? Uh, is that changing what your plan is for your post-task if you're structuring your course that way or for the next task in your task sequence that maybe you want to um, utilize. So it's it's a, like we're talking about reactivity so much, but that reactivity is, yeah. is a lot of work. It is so, a lot of work.
4: So, um,
0: you know, it's definitely not the case that you're, it's, you're sitting back and making your grocery list at all. Um, and, you know, of course, anytime that learners are in a dynamic environment where they're interacting a lot, I think that there is perhaps a little bit more classroom management. That's also a criticism that people might say is that the classroom management piece it will be overwhelming. And I think like there's no way of getting around that. It is true that if you give everyone an individual worksheet to sit silently and fill mm-hmm. in, that that is an easier space to manage. I say this as someone that's taught second grade. I, I, I definitely know. I've been there. I've been in a chaotic classroom before, and I know how stressful <laughs> it can be. So it does involve creating systems of classroom management so that learners know what the expectations are. When we're in a, an interactive space, we know what we're doing. The scaffold, we've been scaffolded so that we can work appropriately in those environments so that it can be managed. So you do have to think about classroom management. in, right. in Unless you're, you know, working with complete adults who are, maybe, I mean, usually easier to manage.
1: <laughs> <laughs> to that effect, in in a post-pandemic era, there's definitely we're in a period of time, not just with language education, but all education, where there is much more asynchronous work. How does this, you know, interaction, that kind of stuff within tasks apply, if at all, to if teachers, you know? designing live synchronous tasks to do and then sending them off or whatever the case may be, online or not, or, or whatever, to do their asynchronous tasks. How does that play a part in this?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the cool thing about TBLT is that if you're connecting to the reality of language use in the world, a lot of our interactions are happening online. We're here yeah. on a Zoom screen. Um, I mean, we're synchronous, but like we could be in a text chat. We could be emailing. We could be, I mean, interacting on social media after your podcast is posted. There are so many real authentic ways that you can get learners interacting in digital spaces. Of course, depending on the age and the proficiency, you would have to adjust. But like that opens a whole world of asynchronous uh, possibilities and and learners, especially, well, really all of us, but young learners too, who maybe you're seeking ways to motivate them, like that, there you go. They're motivated by online gaming, by, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, or watching other people play on games like Twitch and things like that, um, which I am fascinated <laughs> that people are into <laughs> that. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of really cool research out there in like the gaming and digital space world um, and how technology can be utilized for TBLT, Marta Gonzalez-Yorette. Uh, Nicole Ziegler there's so many researchers uh, operating in that field so there's there's a world of research and kind of ideas to get people going I think um, if you're interested in doing text chat or gaming or things like that
2: we should definitely bring someone on the podcast to talk about that the twitch Twitch show let's do it yeah
0: okay Um, that's a study I don't I don't know if anyone's done any empirical work on like that as a task but it could be very cool
2: my kids are obsessed with Twitch. So I know there's definitely something happening in there. I've never seen anything in, I've never attended a, what is it? Is it a Twitch session? Stream, what, I think.
1: Stream? stream. Live, yeah, I stream? think. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm too old. I don't know. I, I'll, yeah. I'll just say that. I don't know. That's how you know you're old. It's like, what is Twitch? <laughs>
4: yeah. What is that? What does yeah. that mean?
0: Yeah, I Um, I don't know what the vernacular is around Twitch either, but um, that's a mindset
1: thing too, right? With teachers, with us. I mean, we're teachers. We're we're, I group myself into when I say with teachers, with us. To go back to what Leo said, like if you're making your grocery list, you're not teaching, or if you're just letting them interact, you're not working. Like our role, I can I can hear like myself ten years ago saying, "Yeah, but Twitch is like a video game, and that's not teaching either, right?" Like I think it's a mindset that we can use anything to help them like what's the goal right like what's this what are they we trying to help them accomplish and if that increases interaction and motivation and it's it's their life i mean why not
0: right yeah uh, i mean i think that you can maybe um find s- ways to approximate like those kinds of spaces and the kinds of interactions or use the themes or the content that might be motivating to the learners Um, so, so you could bring it in that way without just saying like, go on Twitch. I mean, also that's, it's tricky for anyone who's teaching a language other than English as well, because obviously the, the world of the internet is, uh, very much using English as a lingua franca. I'm sure on Twitch that you see other languages, but that probably a lot of times when people are commenting, uh, on posts and things and on videos that often Mm -hmm. it's in English because they assume more people will access it that way. So a teacher that's teaching a language, especially like a less commonly taught language here in the in the u s and Canada, um, you know would ha- might be drawing inspiration from those resources to motivate learners to access environments that are in those languages, but maybe doesn't have the same access that you would if you're an ESL or an EFL teacher. So that is something important to keep in mind.
4: Hmm. I. <sighs> I don't hmm.
2: I'm just thinking about what you said, Andrew, because do you remember that interview we did with Paul Nation?
4: hmm Of course. Do you remember what you
2: said about, about teaching. What did he say about teaching? I'm trying to remember. I was trying to pull out the episode here.
1: Oh, the the, the one-liner he had. Yeah, he's Yeah, he's he said the what did he say? Oh, I'm gonna paraphrase because I don't remember exactly. But something basically like a teacher needs to understand that Oh, that le- learning happens without teaching or something like that and it's a hell of a thing for a teacher to understand that they're not the most important like they can do it without you or something like that right
2: they need support i think that's where that's the the role of the teachers as laura was saying like this whole reactive teaching you're doing a million things you're providing Mm -hmm. feedback you're doing classroom management you're 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 um Correcting them, you're giving them support, you're you're doing so many things, and I think all of that is just supporting the learning. So I think the role of the teacher in in task-based language teaching is more of someone who is supporting learning, not teaching because we know that teaching doesn't necessarily lead to learning, and I think that's a very difficult thing for a lot of teachers to to accept, which brings me to the future um We're in 2023, um, leading into 2024, and I know TBLT it's gaining more and more momentum, and I see that as someone who's been teaching for 23 years. And I remember when I first heard of TBLT was in the early 2000s. Where do you see the future of TBLT heading, Laura, especially in light of all these recent advancements in in language learning research? in in technology
0: yeah well i i'm obviously hopeful that it continues to grow in interest with teachers and researchers and teaching uh, communities um either online or um at schools at districts i think some cool advancements that we're seeing are more open access resources so we have mm. laura grzynski weiss's oh. task bank over at indiana university which is a repository of um vetted tasks within a TBLT framework. So any teacher can submit to it. um, And they have a panel of experts that kind of adjudicates and also Mm -hmm. provides feedback. So that's a really cool resource. You also find tasks on um, Iris, which is a repository mostly for researchers to um, put research resources. But there are also a lot of amazing tasks available on, um, that repository for second language resources. Um, and there are a few others kind of floating around popping up all the time. I know that, um, through our, our StarTalk um, program, we have been, um, putting resources that we've developed for the critical language teachers on our website, startalkgeorgetown.edu. Um, and so I think that open access to information and making it easier and more accessible, like I mentioned, Andrea's Coursera, those kinds of, um, Resources, I think, are what gonna is going to keep drawing in the excitement about TBLT and hopefully um, encouraging others to adopt it and try it out. I, I also want to say that I'm really excited by action research. So mm. if there are teachers out there listening to this that um, are thinking, "Oh, I really want to try this out, and I'd love to like chat with somebody about it, and then like I make it into a, a little research project of my own," I would love to to work with somebody that was interested in doing that because I think that with any teaching approach, you know, a re- from a researcher's perspective, like it's only usable and impactful if people are using it and are are feeling like it's helping them. So um, I think action research is a great way to foster yep. those those connections between researchers and teachers. So I'd love to be part of more projects that look at action research with TBLT. Well, you,
2: now you just inspired me to go back into that kind of stuff. I'm, I might
0: and yeah. I, hey, I'd um, love to. I
2: definitely do something like that because of that. Horror. I still, I'm still trying to do task based language teaching, but it's more like task supported in my environment now because of the way. Things. But you said something about the Start Talk, um, and I just went on their website here, and I I have a question because you it's described it's it's Georgetown Start Talk, which is task based training for critical language teachers.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Tell us a little bit about this this um. This project of yours.
0: Yeah. So this, this like I said, is a, it's a federally uh, sponsored program. So there are Talk programs all over the United States, uh, specifically for uh, the languages that are, they change, but that are designated by the U.S. government as the critical ones, which I is Arabic, Korean, Mandarin. Russian and Farsi right now. And so they, they, uh, they do um, summer camps for kids who want to learn those languages. They support those kinds of things. And they also support teacher training initiatives. So we have uh, for two years been doing um, TBLT training for teachers of those languages. So that you do have to be teaching in the U S for this one. um, And one of those languages, Mm -hmm. Um, but um, we last summer had a group of teachers uh, on Georgetown's campus and we are um, supporting them and in investigating their needs, their students' needs, and taking them through the entire kind of TBLT process. Uh, so it was fascinating to work with teachers in that intensive way. And we do have a summer camp again next summer in 2024. So your U.S. listeners um, can definitely look that up. But like I said, we're also putting things on our website, as a repository of kind of resources. So you could also check those out. We'll put those links
1: um, in the show notes as well. Your your, your website and, and everything as well. So people yeah. can, just click below yeah. if you're listening in the future. <laughs> you can look, cool. click below and check it
4: out. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's very interesting. I was just reading the website here and there's a lot of really, really cool stuff here, um, especially for teachers who want to get started with, with task-based language teaching, which...
1: I found before you ask your question, I know what oh, you had to you ask. Found, f- you found... I found the Paul Nation quote. Okay. You've got to what believe that by not teaching, people can learn.
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: And he says, for a teacher, that's a hard thing to believe in.
2: Right. There you go. It's, it's that explicit teaching of grammar, one, one little McNugget at a time, okay. and hoping that the students will synthesize all that information and eventually communicate, <laughs> um, which, again, I wanted to ask you this, because, you know, based on your extensive experience and everything that you have done and researched, for a lot of teachers, educators out there who are new to TBLT, who are looking to deepen their practice in this area. What key advice would you offer to these people to ensure a successful and smooth, of course, there's never going to be smooth, but a successful transition and implementation of TBLT in their practice, in their classroom?
0: Yeah, well, I think I mentioned this previously, but I think that building a support network is key. I just don't, I think that... Um, Sometimes te- teachers feel like we're all teaching yeah. in our individual classrooms kind of in a vacuum, but, you know, sharing and being able to support each other with resources that are working. I think that building those communities of practice is really the key. Um, so I definitely encourage people to, to join up with other teachers that are like-minded. Um, and I, there's some communities online that do that. Um, I talked about action research and getting in touch with researchers if you're interested mm-hmm. in getting feedback or submitting to things like the task bank. Um, I can't help but plug that I do have a book coming out. I was about to
2: ask you that. What is the art and the science of language teaching? I'm interested in the art and the science
4: part.
0: Yeah, (laughs) so this could be a good place to start um, for some people. Uh, It's co-authored with Alison Mackey, my colleague here at Georgetown, who's obviously one of the foundational researchers in interaction. Um and we it's with Cambridge coming forthcoming with Cambridge University Press, and we actually went around and asked teachers questions, uh, like, what oh. are your most common questions about language like the science of language teaching? And right. we collected them from teacher networks, you know, snowball sampling method to whoever we could get in touch with around the world, really, uh, all different oh. countries, all different languages and ages. so it's it's not pitched towards any specific group. It's really just the. The science that is applicable to all language learning. And so each chapter is, you know, how do I get my students talking? Mm -hmm. Why is corrective feedback important? So those kinds of interaction questions we were talking about earlier. And then later, um, we have a a chapter on TBLT and situating it within other approaches to teaching. So if people ask um, from the teaching community, I'm now able to send them that chapter because it breaks down, every chapter breaks down what the research does say, like what we know. And then also what we don't know, which I think is really important because.
2: Yeah. what What is it that we don't know?
0: <laughs> well, we don't know a lot, right? I, there's very few areas where anyone can just, you know, say this is going to work in every classroom, every single time for every right. single learner. Um, and so it's in, about kind of empowering teachers about where. You might try and integrate research, but also where, you know, there are gaps. Like Mm -hmm. I know corrective feedback is important, but I can't tell you what specific type is going to work in every situation, every single Mm -hmm. time. So you have to also empower people to make those decisions on their own and know where they can, where there's evidence and where there's not evidence. So I think it is really important to recognize that research is always growing, expanding, we're always adding. Um, So you know, you have to, you have to know where the gaps are. And then we always, we, each chapter also has um, some strategies to try. So we have different oh, activities nice. and different um, ideas, or materials that teachers might be able to utilize. And on the website there, there's a website associated with the book that we have slides. Um, if you're oh, going nice. to do a teacher training on one of the chapters or something like that, you could use those. And we have lots of um, hilarious cartoons of cats because Allison and I are both cat lovers. So Uh, that is featured to bring a little lightheartedness to a textbook world that I think I've become one. Yeah. My partner is a cat person.
1: And then. Okay. uh, Well, welcome to
0: the community. Yes. But, uh, you know, trying to add a little levity to, like, you know, reading about uh, research is is good.
1: And that's a very good
2: example of that. No, Golia. I was just going to say cats are a very good example of task based learning. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I I I I've learned to love cats by, you know, <laughs> interacting with one.
0: <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Uh,
2: Andrew, <laughs> go ahead. You're going to say?
1: No, say the the title of the book again. The Art and Science of Language Teaching. And that's from Cambridge University Press, Laura, that's right?
0: Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. With Alison Mackey. Mm-hmm. Um
1: by the time if you're listening to this, it probably already is out, but looking at it as we're recording now, uh, it looks like it's available from January, is that right?
0: Yeah, there the digital versions. I think coming out next week, and then the hard copies oh. in the US. I think it might come out earlier in Europe, um, but yeah, early January. Oh, wow. Perfect. Yep. Exciting. 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 I'm very is... excited. It's my first book, so I'm. Oh yeah! Excited. Congratulations. <laughs> you. You. So the the oh, link
1: is below. Be... Please click on it, and we'll circulate that, of course, in our networks, uh, newsletter, and things like that as well.
2: Before Thank you. we wrap, re- before we wrap up, I actually have two questions. The first one is it's more of a of a reflection on your journey as a TBLT um, advocate, I guess that's the best word, or researcher, whatever you want to call it, but reflecting on your journey with TBLT, researching, training, and all that, what have been or what were some of the most rewarding experiences or perhaps surprising discoveries that you've encountered throughout these years?
0: Oh, that's such a great question. Oh, I love reflecting on these things. I mean, there's probably been countless uh, surprises. Um, I think like anytime that you are invested in the messy realities, I like to call it, of language teaching. So not, you know, I've done I've done research that's a little bit less messy, like, you know, meta analysis where you're kind of behind the scenes coding right data spreadsheets, and that's super important work. But when you're in the classroom and kind of seeing what's really happening and what does and doesn't work and what teachers do and don't do, um, that's usually I think where the most exciting uh surprises and deep conversations that I've had. Um for pro- I mean, it's gotta be like the pivot during COVID. Like we, I was doing this project for years in Honduras where we're, you know, we had this beautiful in-person teacher training program. We've implemented TBLT. We've been collecting data for years. And then suddenly we were like, what are we going to do? We have to support the teachers. We have to figure out a way to move all of this information online. And we, uh, our team there, which included people basically from all over the world. We, I mean, I remember one day putting in Like one of those online calculators about like what time zone, what when can we meet based on all the time zones involved, and it was like, no, you can't. (laughs) It's not possible. There's no good time. Someone's (laughs) asleep. So it was really difficult, and uh, it was really um, amazing to see all the people that came out to kind of support the teaching. um, And how do you um, get people access to teaching resources in a situation where, especially there, where when schools closed, students were pretty isolated for a while, because um, right. they didn't have as you know robust Internet services or computing services at home. So that was the biggest, I think, challenge, and we came together, and we really developed for that organization a really cool online um, Google classroom, where we put all these resources about TBLT, and we made all these videos, and we read their tasks. So um, that, that, I think, is when I think about the biggest change in the journey, it, it was definitely around then. I'm sure everybody's got a story like that from COVID.
2: I think COVID was definitely um, a transformative experience for all of us.
0: Oh, yes. Yes.
2: We're never going to be the same after that. No. Um, which brings me to my last question, which is not a, I mean, it could be a language related question if you interpret us as such. But it's usually like just uh, an opportunity for you to kind of, you know, get your your message out there. And I like to ask this question every time we have a new guest on the podcast. And the question is very simple, Laura. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere <laughs> <No>. <laughs> with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, of course, getting this message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say?
0: Oh, my Why? gosh. I wish you would might- be. It could be it's a few words. Or it could be advance.
2: a paragraph. No, no, it's, it's better if it's if it's I always like watching people's have...
1: reactions as you're asking the question
4: because <laughs> it's like
0: <laughs> the horror in their <laughs> eyes. Um, uh. Okay, gosh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, I have a lot of things I would say in various domains of, of the world, but I, I, I'll stick to to TBLT focused. I think for this and not in. Just know I have other things that I care about, (laughs) world peace, et cetera. (laughs) Um, uh, I would say um, that uh, be open to new approaches to language teaching and uh, creating community with others who are excited and interested about um, working towards Uh, research-based innovation and language teaching, and that could be through, this would not fit on a billboard, uh, partnerships in your community or with researchers, and uh, that I think that that is the way where we can hopefully meet the most students' needs, um, and I think TBLT is one of them. So it's not a billboard message, but this idea of collaboration I think is the one that I would want to share the most, so something like that. I, I could workshop it.
2: <laughs> beautiful. We'll nice. just have to get sponsors on the podcast to um, be able to pay for that billboard. Yes. 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 But it's a, it's a beautiful message. I don't
0: have anything as snappy as a pollination.
2: <laughs> I have one. No, we have lots. One we question. Lots, Leo, I don't know if
1: you're going to like this. We can delete this after if we don't like it. I uh. learned this from another podcast that I'm listening to, Diary of a CEO, and he does this, and I thought it was a really interesting idea where he asks a guest that he's interviewing on the podcast a question that we will ask to the next guest that we interview so you can bring the question and you have no idea who that person is or what their context is or what they do but whatever question you want asked we will ask it to the next person
4: me Mm -hmm. oh this is
0: is a a good
2: question i don't know i'm actually i like that idea by the way (laughs)
0: Well, I mean, okay, well, I can tell you that I was, uh, and I, I don't know if you'll get somebody like this on your podcast, because it's more of like a first language acquisition question. But I just read, because I don't know as much about first language acquisition. Uh, but I was just reading a study that um, was saying that, that, like, everything we know about babies' language is wrong and that they don't accumulate individual sounds one by one that they actually accumulate intonational phrases and Mm. they are doing this really fascinating new research with babies um and so i was like oh this that's so fascinating and i wonder what that has to say about um maybe about how people learn i have a interest in phonology too so Mm. um, how people acquire sounds in their second language so this was you know, new research that I would love to like talk to somebody who knows more about baby language than I do. Um, but, you know, you probably won't have any ba- baby specialists around, but if you do, you can ask them about the new <laughs> research. I think it's coming out of Trinity College in Dublin uh, cool. with babies language acquisition. Yeah, We'll so, find
2: someone in Trinity College to come on the podcast. If we follow
1: the, the idea, we'll just ask that question and um, maybe they'll say, I have no idea, but we'll ask it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe i also say that my billboard could also say something like um, uh, focusing on uh, real world tasks is like the future of language teaching or something like that. That would be a more snappy billboard uh, than my other one about collaboration.
2: Real world tasks.
0: Yeah. Mm. Authentic real world tasks. Something like that.
2: Okay. Done. We can afford right. that one. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, that's cheaper. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, this, this was so us.
0: fun. I was nervous, <laughs> but you guys really? made it really easy.
2: Oh, come on. You don't have to be nervous. This podcast is, for us, is mostly a label of love. We just like talking to people and asking them questions that we keep getting from teachers. Yeah. And. Andrew, I just realized we're not celebrating five years, we're celebrating six years of the podcast. Oh, wow.
0: Congratulations.
2: Yes. 2019 was the first year. So if you do the math, yeah, we were language teachers, not math teachers. So I just realized (laughs) that. But The Art and Science of Language Teaching by Lara Bryfonsky and Allison Mackey, Mm -hmm. coming out probably in a week or so, you said?
0: Yeah, digitally, yes.
1: We're in and the future right now. So if you're listening to this in February, it's out. It's so already
2: wrap. out. Go get it. It's go, out. Go get a copy of it. Maybe we should have Allison come on the podcast to talk oh, about the book. Oh, uh,
0: yeah, yeah. You should definitely that ask be really her. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. She's um, fascinating and has got so many great and interesting stories. So I would definitely recommend reaching out to her too. Perfect. I'll give her. I'll give you the best review from this experience. Awesome. You made it very fun and easy, and uh, a really great conversation, and uh, made me made me think a lot too. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome.
2: Thank we appreciate you. That. Thanks everyone.
0: You've been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.